bear no ill will to any section of the Irish political body, whether its flag be green or orange. But we feel certain that if the eyes of the Irish nation are continually focused on England, they will inevitably acquire a squint. There's a vile, skulking, servile spirit abroad, a lying, dastardly spirit, sometimes disguising itself as a patriotic spirit. We shall strive to exorcise that spirit and to make its harbour as loathsome as leprosy in the sight of the people. Arthur Griffith, writing in the first issue of The United Irishman, a new four-page journal, first published in Dublin, March 1899. Griffith, at the age of 28, had come back from Africa to edit it. This was his first editorial. Lest there be a doubt in any mind, we will say that we accept the nationalism of 98, 48 and the 67 as the true nationalism. And Grattan's cry, live Ireland, perish the empire, as the watchword of patriotism. Arthur Dan Griffith, the son of a Dublin printer, was born in Dominic Street, close to Parnell Square, on March 31st, 1871. In that year, a young graduate of Cambridge University, Charles Stuart Parnell, was in America, seeking the hand of an American heiress. He was rejected as being a person of no public name and returned to Ireland to enter Parliament four years later. And to America also, in 1871, came the Fenians, Devoy and O'Donovan Rossa, released from British prisons on condition that they would settle outside Ireland. And in England, the 1870 Land Act, which first acknowledged the rights of the people of Ireland to the land of Ireland, was, for the moment, being quietly forgotten. Griffith was educated by the Christian Brothers, first at St Mary's Place and then at Strand Street. In these formative years, he was influenced by his teacher and well-known nationalist, Brother Morrissey from Donnerail, who instilled into his pupils a love for their own country. Then there was the old kinswoman who told and retold the story of how, as a young girl of eleven, she had witnessed the execution of Robert Emmett. But it was Parnell who was to become his hero. Economic recession in England in the mid-70s had hit Irish agricultural products, resulting in lower incomes and widespread evictions in Ireland. Parnell and Davitt championed the cause of Irish farmers, five-six of whom were then tenants at will. Griffith, as he grew up in the city, became aware of the struggle, mainly through the holding of mass meetings and seeing the ensuing clashes with the soldiers. And by 1881, as the cry went forth, we want the land that bore us, we'll make that cry our chorus. The London Times commented, The only cure for the lawlessness in Ireland is to sink the island 50 feet below the level of the ocean for 48 hours and then lift it up and commence anew. But even though Parnell was for a time imprisoned in Kilmainham and toned down his campaign somewhat on his release, the fruits of the agitation began to appear. The first of the Great Land Acts was passed and, in 1884, the Franchise Bill was put through Parliament by the Liberals which increased the number of voters in Ireland from 200,000 to 700,000. By this time, Arthur Griffith had left school and had become an apprentice printer with the firm of Underwood. Even now, he was an omnivorous reader, frequenting St Paul's Library in Aaron Key and discussing his reading and borrowing books from his employer, Jane Underwood. Parnell's Irish party now held the balance of power in the British Parliament, but Gladstone's Home Rule Bill was defeated when 93 of his own Liberal Party voted against it. And, in the July election that followed, the Conservatives returned to power with a large majority, and the Irish Party was again powerless. 
Griffith now, at the age of 17, had joined the Irish Fireside Club, a literary youth club founded by poet Rose Kavanagh, and there became acquainted with another young Dubliner and budding poet, Willie Rooney. They were to remain close friends until Rooney's early death in 1901. Towards the end of the decade, on the political front, the focus had switched to Parnell. First victory as the Pigott forgeries were exposed and tragedy when his affair with Kitty O'Shea was made public. Griffith, who now had finished his apprenticeship and was working as a copywriter, was present at a meeting held by the Irish Parliamentary Party in the Leinster Hall, November 1890. At this meeting, the party unanimously agreed to support Parnell. But five days later, the Pall Mall Gazette in London published Gladstone's letter repudiating Parnell's leadership, and on the following day, the Irish party broke ranks, 24 in favour of Parnell and 44 against. Griffith was dumbfounded. During the rest of his life, he never quite forgave the Irish Parliamentary Party for this betrayal, as he termed it. Even as late as 1922, he opposed the election of veteran politician Tim Healy as first Governor-General of the Irish Free State because, at this time, he had voted against Parnell. When a political leader poses as a political leader, he argued, what on earth business is it of mine or any man if, in his private life, he be not a saint? But, within a year, Parnell was dead the Irish party became more disunited and a disillusioned Griffith began to look for new ways to express his nationality. Both he and Willie Rooney were leading members of the Leinster Literary Society and now they collaborated in their first journalistic venture, a series of articles on the historic graves in the Dublin locality, which were published in the Evening Herald. Some of the articles were devoted to men like Dean Swift and James Clarence Mangan and so began for Griffith a lifelong interest in the writers of the 18th century especially Swift, whose prose-style he was to later copy. He was also a member of the Young Ireland League, which supported such legislation as the Public Libraries Act and tried to, to gain recognition for the Irish language, both in schools and teacher training colleges. He was a member also of the Celtic Literary Society, which was founded by Rooney, whose aim was to propagate an interest in Irish history, language, music and traditions. He now also began to write ballads, his best-known being... Twenty Men from Dublin Town, and the satirical ballad Lay of the Thirteenth Lock. In the Celtic Literary Society, he met the young poet W. B. Yeats, and one evening Yeats brought along Maud Gone to a meeting. She was warmly greeted, but politely informed that membership was not open to women. Of that first meeting with Griffith, Maud Gone was to write, He was a fair, shy boy. One would hardly notice, but I was at once attracted to him. I hardly know why, for he did not speak. But Maud Gon soon gathered a circle around herself. She had rented rooms over Morrow's bookshop in Nassau Street, and Griffith and Rooney, who often spent the evening in the reading room of the National Library in nearby Kildare Street, would drop in on their way home, and, in company with the likes of Douglas Hyde, Yeats, Stephen McKenna, and the elderly Dr George Sigerson, they would talk until the early hours. We all kept early hours in Dublin in those days, wrote Maud Gon, and went home with the milk, a big black kettle and a tea and coffee pot in a cupboard in the wall supplied refreshments. Many famous poems and plays had their first reading, and many plots were hatched in them, plots for plays and plots for real life. At the end of 1896, Griffith decided to go to South Africa. Why? Simply because he was a young man and wished to see the world. It was common then for printers to travel. His father, as a young man before him, had worked in the United States and in London before returning to Dublin. 
Griffith was also asked by one of his friends who had gone out there to come and join him. A presentation made by the Celtic Literary Society helped to pay for his passage. The South Africa that Griffith came to in 1897 consisted of three communities, the Native Africans, the Boers, descendants of Dutch settlements, and the Oitlanders, mainly of British descent. The treatment of the Native Africans was not then a political issue, but there was trouble brewing between the other two factions, especially with regard to the gold mines in the Johannesburg region. Griffith was in sympathy with the Boers, and when he got his first job in the Transvaal, printing a small impoverished weekly journal, because of his pro-Boer tendencies, he succeeded only in killing it off. The Britishers withdrew their support, and the Boers wouldn't even bother to read a journal printed in English. He next moved on to Pretoria, and then on to Johannesburg, where he worked in the mines as a machine overseer. Among the Irish working in the Rand was John McBride, whom Griffith had known in the Young Ireland League. To coincide with 1798 centenary celebrations to be held in Ireland, they organised an Irish society in Johannesburg, and on the day marched through the streets, the proceedings ending that night with the singing of the Boer anthem, the Volkslied, and God Save Ireland. Meanwhile in Ireland, the 98 celebrations had aroused a new spirit of nationalism, and to give it a continuance, the idea of starting a newspaper was mooted. Willie Rooney was asked to become editor, but he suggested Arthur Griffith instead, and having convinced the others, he wrote to Griffith offering him the post. So, Griffith returned from South Africa at the end of 1898, and on the following March, the United Irishman commenced publication. It had very little financial backing, and Griffith put all his savings into it, the princely sum of £40. It was never a financial success, nor did it expect to be, for the majority of the people in Ireland at the time supported the Parliamentary Party. In the fourth issue, there was a call for a thousand additional agents to distribute it. But in the same issue also, a two-line announcement said that Mr Thomas Clark would, on the following Thursday, give a lecture entitled Fifteen Years in a British Prison. Griffith and Rooney already were thinking in terms of forming a new national movement, and in the ninth issue, Griffith wrote a very important editorial. I urge the establishment of a national organisation with the openly avowed ultimate object of ending British rule in this country, fearlessly asserting its intention of securing that object at all hazards and by all means, but honestly acknowledging its present inability to lead Ireland to victory against the armed might of our enemy, confining itself for some time to the discipline of the mind and the training of the forces of the nation while impressing on it that, in the last resort, nothing save weapons of free men can regain its independence. It need have no secrecy about it whatsoever. I am not, however, to be taken as opposed to secrecy in the Irish national movement, but at the present time do not consider it necessary or politic. When it becomes essential, let us be as secret as the Brethren of the Rosy Cross. Such an organisation, should I suggest, requires only two qualifications from its members. One, that they declare themselves advocates of an Irish Republic. The other, that they be persons of decent character. Possibly there may be a few persons among us who, while subscribing to the doctrine of national independence, are not Republicans. If such there be, I would remind them, as Mitchell did their fathers, that the time has passed when Jehovah anointed kings. For though I am a believer in republican systems of government, I am ready, 
as I believe is every other Irish nationalist, to accept any form of mature government in preference to alien rule. In this editorial, Griffith sets out the aims which were to dominate his life. His ultimate object, and the word ultimate is very significant, is to end British rule in Ireland. But how? He acknowledges the present inability to win freedom by force of arms, but does not rule out the use of force. Rather, he says, in the last resort, nothing save the weapons of free men can gain its independence. During the next decade, he was to move from this opinion. He could see armed insurrection only in terms of an all-out struggle, which Britain inevitably must win, and equated this with the dismal failures of the 98, 48 and 67 rebellions. Rather did he come to believe that it would be much more profitable in the long run to concentrate on the disciplining of the mind and the training of the forces of the nation. Although he joined the IRB about this time, he could see no need for secret societies, but added rather mysteriously that, when the time came, let us be as secret as the Brethren of the Rosy Cross. It is ironic to think that when the IRB opted for this very maxim in 1916, Griffith was not in their confidence. He was, at this time also, an unequivocal Republican, quoting the words of John Mitchell to the unbelievers, The time has passed when Jehovah anointed kings. But even now, he qualifies his republicanism by saying that he accepts any form of mature government in preference to foreign rule. But the founding of a new movement was postponed as war broke out in South Africa, and Griffith, with the help of the old Fenian John O'Leary, Maud Gonne, Willie Redmond, who held advanced national views then, Willie Rooney and James Connolly, who would come to Dublin in 1896, all these founded the Transvaal Committee with the object of opposing British Army recruitment in Ireland and giving aid to John McBride, who was fighting in South Africa on the side of the Boers. One night, when Griffith and James Connolly were walking home from a meeting, Connolly put forward the theory that, with the reduction of British troops in Ireland owing to the war, this was the time for an insurrection. Griffith replied that there were scarcely 500 patriots in the whole country, and all without arms. Connolly suggested the takeover of key buildings throughout the city. Griffith countered that the British fleet would shell the city. Capitalists won't destroy capitalist buildings, says Connolly. The English will destroy anything Irish, Griffith answers. Dog will eat dog. And they continue on their way in silence. All this in the year 1900. Michael Davitt resigned his seat in the British Parliament on account of the Boer War, and Griffith and Rooney sponsored a John McBride, though still in South Africa, for the vacant seat in Mayo. But in a low poll, McBride was defeated, and so Griffith's first entry into the political field was a failure. In November of 1900, an attempt was made to form a new movement. A convention of about 20 national societies was held in the rooms of the Celtic Literary Society. The name given to it was Common and Whale, and John O'Leary was made president. In the same year also, Maud Gonne founded a women's organisation in Inina Heron. The United Irishman, meanwhile, had grown from four to eight pages, but its circulation had not increased, and it was always in financial difficulties. People like Edward Martin and John Sweetman often came to its aid, and Maud Gonne went on a lecture tour to America to provide funds. Also, there was help for Griffith from unexpected sources, as Michal Kyo recalls. Funds were very, very low with him. And um, one day, a knock came to the door of the room in which he was working in Dublin, his little room, and a gentleman walked in and addressed me, you, Mr. Griffith? He said, yes, I'm Arthur Griffith. He said, there's something to keep your paper going. And Griffith, surprised, looked up at him, 
and he, the visitor, walked out rather abruptly and bade him good day, good day, goodbye, slanat, and so on. And Greer, to his surprise, found that the little packet that was placed on his table contained a hundred pounds. In later years, I understood that the person who gave that money to Griffith and who helped to continue the life of the paper was none other than Parry Cahoe. In 1900, the Irish Parliamentary Party was again united under the leadership of John Redmond, but it was the visit of Queen Victoria in March that caused most interest. Dublin Unionists gave a feast for school children in the Phoenix Park, and to counter this, Griffith and Maud organised a rival function in honour of the Famine Queen, the Patriotic Children's Feast. Professor Liam O'Brien recalls that day. Queen Victoria came to Dublin, gave uh, a breakfast to all the loyal children in the Phoenix Park, all lined along the, the main road of the Phoenix Park. I was up there, I saw the old dame passing by, but I wasn't invited to the breakfast. And then the... The, not the Sinn Féiners, the word wasn't in use, but the pre-Sinn Féiners, the prehistoric Sinn Féiners at the time, Arthur Griffin and some others got up a patriotic children's treat. That's for all the children who refused the Queen's breakfast. And 30,000 young urchins gathered at the back of the Custom House and we were matched at Clontarf Park. While waiting at the Custom House, I saw this little man getting up on an outside car, I think along with Maud Gonn and some others, I don't know whom, probably some of his old cronies like Alderman Tom Kelly or Tom Shinecuff or others. And a short time later, Griffith was involved in probably what must have been the most bizarre event of his life. A small weekly called the Dublin Figaro announced that Maud Gonn was in receipt of a British government pension. Without waiting for any help from his comrades, Griffith took the law into his own hands. Grasping his trusty South African shambok in his hand, in the best traditions of the empire that he hated, he stalked into the offices of the Figaro and proceeded to horsewhip the editor, for which administration of rough justice he was arrested and sent to jail for one month. In May of the following year, to his great distress, Willie Rooney died suddenly. Griffith felt the loss keenly, but he continued on the work of editing the paper week after week, turning out articles on all aspects of Irish life, political, cultural and economic, scolding, warning, advising, determined that the Irish people should take pride in their own nationality, that they should not lose their identity. Pothic Cullum was then a young writer in Dublin. In a recording made in 1949, this is how he described Griffith, the man and his writing habits. Griffith, a strongly built, friendly, but rather impassive man. He had a moustache above a broad chin. He wore magnifying glasses before remarkably steady eyes. He was a splendid man to be with on tramps through the country. He could go on for hours with a deliberate gait, talking in a rather low voice about people and places. He knew everything about the local history of Dublin and places adjoining, and he could keep on talking, often with great humour, about events that had happened on the streets or upon the hillside. He was a Dublin man loving the city, as men might have loved Athens or Florence. He wrote his articles with a pencil upon long slips of rough paper. He would take his pencil in hand exactly at 12 o'clock. He would write without lifting his head. He would finish just as the hand finished the round of the clock. Then he would lift up his arms and stretch out his legs as if to say, well, that job's finished. As a youthful probationer in the profession of writing, 
1903, King Edward VII came on a visit to Ireland, and his visit gave Common and Whale an opportunity to show its mettle. The late Maud Gone McBride, in a talk given way back in 1937, recalls one incident which involved Griffith. She was living then in Ratgar and hung out a black flag from her window as the death of the Pope was announced the same day as King Edward arrived. This black flag fluttering amid the Union Jacks was regarded by her Unionist neighbours and by the police as an act of disloyalty, and when it was removed she put out a black petticoat instead. An ugly situation was threatening when she decided to send for help. Dudley Diggs had received Mary Quinn's message asking for help and had summoned not only Anini and Aham, but Arthur Griffith. Once more we heard the sound of marching men and round the corner from Rathgar swung a great procession marching four deep and about a thousand strong. It was a common day of clubs who had been summoned by Arthur Griffith. The Celtic Literary Society and in Union Haven were in force. The little road was packed with a disciplined body of men who looked as though they could deal with any situation. And the Unionists quickly retired into their houses. Griffith told the police that they could go as Commoner Gay was now in charge and would keep order. And away they went, amid the tears of the crowd. In 1904, Griffith published his best-known work, a pamphlet entitled The Resurrection of Hungary. In it, Griffith argued that following the lead given by Hungary in regard to the Austrian Empire, Ireland, as a first step towards full independence, should abstain from sending members to a British Parliament. Griffith further argued that the Act of Union passed in 1800 was illegal and that the Constitution of 1782, which gave to Ireland Grattan's Parliament, should now be invoked. The resurrection of Hungary was a major breakthrough in political thinking at the time and the concept of a dual monarchy was widely discussed. However, the older generation were not easily convinced as Liam O'Brien was to find out. I remember with great excitement buying a copy for a penny of the, this original famous pamphlet on the Hungarian policy. The Resurrection of Hungary. Yes, The Resurrection of Hungary. And uh, going home, say to my father, uh, who's an ordinary old Dublin citizen, uh, here's a great thing, this man says, we shouldn't send members to the British Parliament at all, but keep them at home uh, and, and, and have a parliament here of our own in spite of the English. Mm-hmm. And he said just... Bosh. <laughs> Bosh. And uh, that retarded my political development for years. Mm-hmm. The Irish Parliamentary Party, however, rejected his proposals, and Griffith, at the end of 1905, founded a national council to promote his ideas. Soon it became known as Sinn Féin, and became linked with Common and Whale and the Dungannon Clubs, a new resourceful IRB movement set up in Belfast by Bulmer Hobson, Dennis McCullough and later Sean McDermott. The purely Republican aims of the Dungannon clubs and the dual monarchy aims of Griffith did not provide an ideal basis for a close alliance. Nevertheless, the three groups worked together for a while under the name of the Sinn Féin League. Balmer Hobson, in his book Yesterday and Tomorrow, says that Griffith was an excellent propagandist, but was extremely dogmatic and difficult to work with. He continues, He did not want cooperation, but obedience. 
I had many differences with Griffith, but there was no man more sincere or more completely devoted to the country than he. Patrick Pierce also, who was then in a political limbo, found him difficult to work with. Griffith demanded total acceptance of his plans to nothing less. In 1908, Sinn Féin contested his first election in North Leitrim, but their candidate, Charles Dolan, was well defeated. The Liberal Party had now come back to power in England, and with the possibility of home rule in the air again, the popularity of Sinn Féin declined. Griffith now decided to concentrate on local politics, with getting Sinn Féin members elected in Dublin Corporation. And while this was successful, it did not please Hobson and the Dungannon clubs, and they quietly began to drop out of the Sinn Féin League. Henceforth, they were to become purely a physical force movement, dedicated to the setting up of an independent republic, although numbering only about 1,500. At the same time, 1910, Griffith left the IRB, of which he was nominally a member, not on a matter of principle, however, but on a matter of discipline. Andreas Moro Bryn, General Secretary of Sinn Féin, and also a member of the IRB, was elected to fill the vacancy of the centre of the Emerald Circle in Dublin. He was, however, suspended, as the new IRB policy was to exclude any individual who held outside political responsibilities, and Griffith resigned in protest of what he called an unwarranted encroachment upon the freedom of elections. In that year also he got married. He had known his wife, Maud Sheehan, since childhood, and as far as back as 1894, he was accompanied her to the Lily of Killarney. She was a soprano and belonged to the ladies' choir and Barton McGuckin's Dublin Opera Society. They had become engaged in 1904, but, because of Griffith's poor circumstances, the engagement was a long one. Griffith, to his own loss, had absolutely no interest in money. As far back as 1901, Maud Gon failed to persuade him to take £2.10 a week's wages instead of 30 shillings for editing the United Irishman. And now his friends, without his knowledge, set up a fund and bought him a house in Clontarf. Griffith himself also was very keen on music, an interest which he inherited from his mother, whose family owned a music shop. He published a ballad history of Ireland, which ran through the pages of the United Irishman in 1904. He was also very interested in the Oireachtas and Feshkeol concerts, and while in London for the treaty negotiations in 1921, he attended John Gay's The Beggar's Opera on several occasions. The United Irishman had closed down in 1905, owing to a successful libel action brought against it by a priest, but it was revived again three months later with the new name Sinn Féin. Griffith, in his capacity as editor, also acted as drama critic, and here he gained the doubtful distinction of being completely opposed to the plays of Singh, thus incurring the wrath of W.B. Yeats. Padre Cullum recalls Griffith's views at that time. He began by maintaining that the shadow of the Glen was Petronius's widow of Ephesus in an Irish setting. <coughs> He could not see that there could be any originality in the retelling of a fable of universal application. He declared that the well of the saints was derived from a story by Wilkie Collins. Even that masterpiece, Riders to the Sea, was belittled by him because Singh had brought a corpse into it. I saw him at the first night of Deirdre of the Sorrows, and he said to me, I always told you Singh had no imagination. You see, he has had to put a grave on the stage. He couldn't suggest tragedy without having a corpse or a grave in our view. This opposition to Singh was based on Griffith's view that drama should be of the heroic mould, glorifying the sagas and heroes of ancient Ireland. 
and as far back as 1899, in the pages of the United Irishman, he wrote thus of W.B. Yeats. Mr. Yeats has sounded the assaults on a demoralised and demoralising stage in his native country. He has proved himself an artist. We know him to be patriotic. Nevertheless, he has exhibited a startling misconception of the character of his countrymen. This is a fault which he must correct if he desires enthusiasm to animate those who otherwise would uphold him only through a sense of duty. We shall watch with great anxiety. Yeats despised any attempt to limit the freedom of the creative writer or any claim that it is subservient to the cause. Yet it is not true, as has often been suggested, that Griffith's writing inspired the playboy rights. When Yeats's The Countess Kathleen was performed in 1899, Griffith condemned the action of those who attempted to create a disturbance, although admitting that he could understand their motives. He denounced the playboys of the Western world, describing it as a vile and inhuman story, told in the foulest language we have ever listened to from a public platform. And when Yeats brought in the police to protect the players, and God Save the Queen was sung at the end of the performance, for Griffith this was the last straw. It is not the nation that has changed towards Mr Yeats, he wrote, it is Mr Yeats who has changed towards the nation. On the political front, the decline of Sinn Féin as a national organisation continued, as the promise of home rule in 1912 became a reality. Even Griffith now gave it a tacit acceptance. Sinn Féin now had a strong vote in Dublin, and Griffith no doubt hoped to build on this when home rule came into being. However, the Northern Unionists, led by Carson, now began to agitate, and the Ulster Volunteer Movement was founded. Meanwhile, in Dublin, the strike of 1913 began. Griffith did not support it. More correct to say, perhaps, that he did not support his leaders. He had an intense dislike for James Larkin, whom he regarded as an Englishman, come over to Dublin to stir up trouble. Griffith had a deep suspicion of all international movements, especially those that had ties with England. Not that he was out of sympathy with the workers. In a long article in Sinn Féin, he outlined his ideas on the relationship between capital and labour and the attitude of Sinn Féin towards the dispute. When a cry echoes in this country today that capitalism and not England is the enemy, the reply is obvious. The capitalism that denied its obligation to the moral law and the law of the nation, the capitalism that enunciated the doctrine of non-interference with its operations as a binding commandment on states and nations, that concept of capitalism has its germ in no Celtic or Latin civilization, but in the Teutonic Hansard and its modern development, the world owes to England. Not capitalism, but the abuse of capitalism oppresses labor. And not in the destruction of the capitalists, but in his subjection to the laws of the state will labor be delivered from its oppression and restored to all its rights. I affirm that the evils of the social system as they exist in this country and in Great Britain are wholly due to English policy and government. I deny that socialism is a remedy for the existent evils or any remedy at all. I deny that capital and labor are in their nature antagonistic. I assert that they are essential and complementary, the one to the other. It is not the right and the function of the nation to say, you are a capitalist, it is your right to use your capital as you please, 
so long as you do not use it to the injury or oppression of the poorer of your brethren and my children. It is not the right of the nation to say to labor, you are labor, you shall sell yourself to capital at capital's price. My policemen will punish you. It is the right and function of the nation to say to labor, you are labor, you shall sell your services to capital for a lawful price, and a lawful price is that which will enable you to live in decency and comfort and provide against the material ills of the world. Whether capital begot labor in the beginning or labor begot capital, without the wedding of capital and labor, we cannot have production. We cannot slay the one without destroying the other. Sinn Féin is a national, not a sectional movement. And because it is national, it must not and cannot tolerate injustice and oppression within the nation. I will not, at least through my voice, associate myself with any war of classes or attempted war of classes. There may be many, many classes, but there can be only one nation. The free nation I desire to see rise again upon the soil of Ireland is no offspring of despair, no neo-feudalism with Marx and Lasalle and Proudhon as its prophets. It is the ancient Irish nation called into new being, a nation in which there will be no slums and no hunger, and every honest man who labors and performs will live in comfort and security. In November 1913, the Irish Volunteer Organization was founded in the Rotunda Rink, a temporary building in the grounds of the Rotunda Gardens, now the Garden of Remembrance. Professor Owen McNeill of University College Dublin presided. Griffith welcomed the movement and looked forward to the day when the volunteers would be present at the opening of a home parliament. From its foundation, the IRB, mainly through Bulmer Hobson and Sean McDermott, had taken steps to secure many powerful posts within the volunteers and were biding their time. Griffith joined as an ordinary private and did not seek any higher office. In June 1914, John Redmond, the leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party, demanded that he be allowed to nominate 25 of his own supporters to be members of the Volunteer Committee. And when his demands were acceded to, disagreements arose in the ranks of the IRB, which now became a secret society within a secret society. At the end of June, the Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated, and while war threatened in Europe, the Volunteers landed a cargo of German rifles at Hoth, Arthur Griffith was among those who marched to Hoth and took possession of the guns and defied the military on their way home. In September, the Great War broke out. John Redmond, in an emotional speech at Woodenbridge, promised Irish solidarity behind Britain, including the services of the volunteers. Griffith, through his paper, denounced Redmond, arguing that Ireland was not at war with Germany. The volunteers now split into two movements, the majority remaining with Redmond's national volunteers and the minority, the Irish Volunteers, under the leadership of Owen MacNeill. At the end of 1914, Sinn Féin was suppressed, but Griffith instead published a small journal called Scissors and Paste. It lasted for two months, and then the IRB leaders asked him to edit a new paper, Nationality, which they would finance. Its offices were in Dolier Street, and Sean McDermott became his business manager. The IRB Supreme Council was now planning an insurrection, but this information was kept secret not only from Griffith and McNeil, but also from many prominent IRB members, including Dennis McCullough, who was its president, and Bulmer Hobson. 
Roger Casement was sent to Germany for arms, and the date of the rising was set for Easter Sunday. A few days beforehand, Hobson got to know of the plans, and on Holy Thursday told MacNeil, who went with him to Pierce's school at Ratvarnham. Pierce said that the rising was now inevitable, and that they could not prevent it. MacNeil opposed it, especially when the news of Casement's arrest came through. On Saturday, Griffith discovered what was going on. Liam O'Brien was with him on that day. He came to my house, Griffith, and left a note. Sorry he didn't keep it. Say, go out to Dr O'Kelly's house in Redgar. Just that. I came in later, and uh, um, I'd been to confession. And I also had uh, picked up uh, a sword, which I had under my coat while I was making my confession, which I did not tell to his reverence. <laughs> and then uh, went out to Baratgar, uh, found... Uh, found uh, Dr Kelly's house in there, a group of people that I knew, and uh, Griffith was there. Griffith has supported McNeil fully in his in his uh, order to uh, in his resolve to uh, to cancel the manoeuvres the next day. There was all sorts of people came to that house that night. Yeah. Uh, still to the present day, I'm hearing of the people who came. There was yeah. a string of messengers, I believe. I was sitting on the stairs, right up the whole stairs, up up to the bedrooms. So mm-hmm. I was told that not long ago at all by by uh, Seamus O'Kelly's widow. And uh, uh, the... Uh, what, why, what, what reasons did you know? I why, did McNeil, um, why did McNeil say we, we'll call it off? Was it because of, of Casement surrendering and because they the, the lost their arms down in... Oh, well, in, McNeil in had been left a good deal in the dark, you know, right up to the last moment. Mm-hmm. So had Griffith. Mm-hmm. They both had grievance. McNeil had decidedly, and Arthur Griffith always said that he had an arrangement with the, with the heads of the volunteers, the heads of the, that's to say, the IRB heads, that he would be kept in touch with what was going on. But they carried the, the, the intense passion for secrecy, the fear of informers and things leaking out that they told nobody anything, you might say, unless mm-hmm. they had to. You left with, with Griffith? Yes, that night. I drove home with Griffith that night. Very silent, as he was always when there was something big on. He uh, simply went along. He'd like to have a companion with him, but not to talk. You see, dead silent. I said to him, what's all that? What's all that about? After all that, he said, an insurrection that was planned to start tomorrow. And that's all I remember him saying, and that's carried on him. But notwithstanding MacNeil's countermanding orders to the volunteers, the rising took place on Easter Monday, and without Griffith's knowledge. On that morning, his wife had gone on an excursion by train to Cork, and he remained at home with his two young children. On Tuesday, from his home in Clontarf, he heard the gunfire coming from the city centre. He put the children over the wall into a neighbour's garden and made his way into the city. He got a message through to the leaders, chiding them for not having told him of their plans, but offering to join them. They declined his offer, instructing him to act as propagandist when the rebellion was over. On Thursday he cycled out by devious routes to MacNeil's house to see if the remaining volunteers could be brought out, but by then it was too late. The rebellion ended on Saturday. Griffith was arrested on the following Tuesday and sent to Wandsworth Prison, and later to Reading Jail. The executions of the leaders and the imprisonments of hundreds of others evoked a wave of sympathy all over the country. Because of the IRB's secrecy, the rising became popularly known as the Sinn Féin Rebellion, a factor which gave a new momentum to the Sinn Féin organisation. While Griffith was in prison, and at the beginning of 1917, his coming role in public life was often discussed by the remaining IRB leaders, People like Rory O'Connor and Count Plunkett were in favour of squeezing him out, 
but he was resolutely defended by George Lyons, who pointed to Griffith's record when compared to many who were now opposed to him. As time went on, however, the IRB had little option, as the name Sinn Féin swept like wildfire all over the country, and became synonymous with rebellion. Meanwhile, in prison, Griffith was actively engaged in keeping up morale. But what was the attitude of the other prisoners towards himself and MacNeil, who had taken no active part in the rebellion? As far as I could see at the time, talking to many of the people there in Wandsworth Jail, and especially later on in Frangach, there was no bitterness about that among all the men that had been fighting. This was a sane measure. This was common sense. To say this was uh, this is what any sane man would think. He hadn't a chance. It had been over in a few days. All the bright hopes that we cherished had come to an end. As Balmer Hobson had foretold, to see foretold in a speech he made a week before the raging, said, "You'll hold out for a week." One of Griffith's fellow prisoners at Reading was the late Shantio Callig, who has left us this memory of him. Griffith was there in great style. He had grown a beard, and it was a little grey pointed beard and it made a great change in his appearance. And he went around all day long with an old pair of carpet slippers tied with bootlaces to his, his feet and his ankles. And he was, a, he was an enthusiast for uh, ball-playing, handball. And I don't know how many games of handball he'd play in the day. Uh, handball wasn't... Uh, in order for some weather or some other reason, he'd spend his day doing his various classes. He had at least two classes a day in Irish to attend, and he was a, a, a zealous pupil. Another of his fellow prisoners at that time also was Hernan de Blyde. He was like a man on uh, making sport on an ocean liner on a long voyage. He was the great organiser of games. Then he ran a, a, a very good manuscript journal which, in which he wrote both serious stuff, ballads, detective stories. He filled it up. He got contributions from others. You see, people like Terence McSweedy wrote something every week but uh, and uh, some of the others wrote, but Griffith filled it up and it was a very good magazine. And another prisoner at Reading, the late Cahal O'Shannon, recalled an incident concerning a mock parliament. We had a mock parliament, but it didn't last for very long. Arthur Griffith was the, uh, was the Prime Minister. We didn't use any Irish words, I think, then, and he had a cabinet one thing or another like that. Uh, I was leader uh, of the opposition, uh, but uh, there were only two or three uh, votes between uh, there wasn't he hadn't much of a majority, but one of his uh, one of his cabinet ministers was Ginger Ginger O'Connell J J O'Connell J J said well now there's not much fun in this he says I well how will you get much fun he listens to see uh, I'm going to cross the floor over to your side of the the house and that will bring down uh, the government well he says I how how will you do that I was to see I'll uh, uh, get up uh, uh, a plan and you'll adopt it, or you'll say that you'll adopt it, uh, for a turfing station for the Irish Navy in uh, the Iron Islands. And that would do. Ginger did that. We had a fierce debate on it. The vote was taken. Ginger crossed, voted with us, and Arthur Griffith was, uh, uh, well, I don't say deposed, but he was defeated. I don't, don't know that he took it very well. As a gesture towards American public opinion, 
and because of the possibility of America entering the war, many of the prisoners, Griffith included, were released from prison on Christmas Eve 1916. Two days before, Count Plunkett had won a convincing victory in North Roscommon with the backing of the IRB, Sinn Féin, the Volunteers and the United Irish League. And Plunkett declared that he would not take his, his seat in Westminster. On his release, Griffith immediately set about republishing nationality. He received financial support from two unexpected sources, £400 from former MP James O'Mara and £100 from the Archbishop of Dublin, William Walsh. And so, nationality was published again in February, and Griffith wasted no time in defining his objectives. It is not British misgovernment, but British government in Ireland, good or bad, we stand opposed to. And in that holy opposition, we seek to band all our countrymen. For the orange man of the north, ceasing to be the blind instrument of his own, as well as his fellow countrymen's destruction, we have the greeting of brotherhood. It is the duty of a free citizen to live so that his country may be the better of his existence. Let each Irishman do so much, and I have no fear for the ultimate triumph of our policy. I say ultimate, because no man can offer Ireland a speedy and comfortable road to freedom, and before the goal is attained, many may have fallen, and all will have suffered. We go to build up a nation from within, and we deny the right of any but our own. In the following months, three other by-elections were won, McGuinness in South Longford, De Valera in East Clare, and Cosgrove in Kilkenny City. The 10th annual Sinn Féin Ordesh was held at the end of October. Behind the scenes, there were differences of opinion about the new constitution, especially between Griffith and Carl Brewer. Brewer, the doctrinaire Republican, Griffith wishing to preserve the aims of the organisation he had founded. Finally, chiefly through the mediation of De Valera, a formula was framed acceptable to both. Sinn Féin aims at securing international recognition of Ireland as an independent republic. Having achieved that status, the Irish people may, by referendum, freely choose their own form of government. Griffith prudently stepped down as president of Sinn Féin in favour of De Valera, who was now also made president of the Volunteers, and so, with the participation of the IRB, all factions of the national movement were united. Griffith became one of the two vice-presidents. The following May, he fought the by-election in East Cavan, where his ancestors had lived. However, shortly before the election, he was arrested, along with de Valera, Count Plunkett, Cosgrove, Countess Markievicz, and about 80 others. He was sent to Gloucester Prison, where he heard on arrival that he was successful in the Cavan election. He was kept in prison until the following March. In the meantime, the Great War had ended in November of 1918. Lloyd George dissolved the Parliament in London and called for an immediate general election. This was the opportunity for Sinn Féin to test its strength. The results even exceeded their expectations. Out of a total of 105 seats, the Unionists returned 26 members, Sinn Féin 73, and the Irish party representation dwindled to a mere six. In this election, Griffith, though still in prison, was returned for both the East Cavan and North West Tyrone constituencies. The Sinn Féin members refused to take their seats at Westminster, and so Dáil Éireann came into being on the 21st of January 1919. Altogether, there were about 40 members in prison, and Cahal Brewer was elected as temporary leader. The prisoners were released in March, and at the meeting in the Mansion House in April, Eamon de Valera was made Prevara, and Arthur Griffith became Minister for Home Affairs. In June, de Valera went to America to strengthen public opinion there in favour of Irish freedom 
and, during his absence, he appointed Griffith as Deputy President. The launching of a national loan brought a quick response from Britain, who now began to take the new government seriously, and in September the doll was declared illegal. And so began in Ireland almost two years of repression, culminating in the outrages of the Black and Tans. Griffith once more was to see the inside of a prison cell. On this occasion, Mountjoy Prison from November 1920 until June 1921. Before this, he presided over the secret meetings of Dáil which met under great difficulties and carried on a quiet takeover of administration throughout the country. For months he could not sleep in his own home and had to use different offices in an effort to avoid arrest. While he was in prison at the beginning of 1921, several half-hearted attempts were made to come to a peace agreement. But it was not until after King George V's speech made at the opening of the Northern Ireland Parliament in June that Lloyd George made direct peace overtures. Read in the present-day light of events, the King's speech, which ushered in partition, now seemed somewhat ironic. I speak from full heart, he said, when I pray that my coming to Ireland today may prove to be the first step towards an end of strife among people, whatever their race or creed. A truce was arranged, beginning on the 11th of July. Griffith was released from prison at the same time, and on the 12th of July, Eamon de Valera led a delegation to London, taking with him Griffith, Count Plunkett, Robert Barton, Austin Stack and Erskine Childers. De Valera, according to a British cabinet conclusion, had asked about such matters as the entry of South Ireland into the Empire, swearing allegiance, the form of the oath, the name of the new state and so forth. What he really was looking for was a republic. But the fact that Northern Ireland had now had a parliament of its own was an insurmountable problem and the British were afraid that the word republic might be used as a precedent by other empire countries, especially India. The Irish delegation returned home to consider the proposals of dominion status for Ireland. All were in agreement not to accept them as they stood. Cahal Brewer and Austin Stack were in favour of breaking off completely, but the majority decided against them. A reply was drafted to Lloyd George in which was set down de Valera's idea of external association, a treaty of free association with the British Commonwealth Group. Lloyd George saw this simply as Ireland's secession from allegiance to the King, and stated on this point no British government could compromise. There followed a long exchange of letters between de Valera and Lloyd George. Finally, a fresh invitation to a new conference on October the 11th was made. On this occasion, de Valera decided to remain in Ireland. Carl Brewer and Austin Stack both refused to be considered. Griffith was made leader. He did not want the job, but never shirked what he considered to be his duty and accepted. With him went a reluctant Michael Collins, Robert Barton, Gavin Duffy and Damon Duggan, and secretaries Erskine Childers, John Chartres and Fionnan Lynch. Griffith objected to Childers' appointment as he bore an illogical hostility to him, and, as Robert Barton was Childers' cousin, it did not augur well for the good relations within the delegation itself. The conference began at 10 Downing Street on the morning of Tuesday, the 11th of October, 1921, and the British delegation consisted of Lloyd George, Chamberlain, Churchill, Birkenhead, Worthington Evans and Greenwood. It is universally acknowledged that Griffith, faced with some of the wiliest politicians in the world, handled himself well. That phenomenon, a silent Irishman, was how Churchill at one time described him. But he impressed Churchill with his profound knowledge of European history and affairs. The negotiations were long and tortuous, Lloyd George refusing to budge on the question of the Crown and emphasising that with the introduction of a boundary commission the North would lose much of its territory. There is little doubt that Griffith would have accepted the issue of the Crown if he became convinced that Ulster's position would become untenable, 
but his orders were to fight for external association, and this he did. He won further concessions on trade and defence, and when finally the British rather dramatically offered a choice of peace or immediate war, Griffith, without consulting Dublin, persuaded the others to sign. He was convinced he would get no more concessions. He thought it was in the best interest of his country. For him it was a great step forward towards full independence. Pothy Cullum recalls the reminiscences of Mrs Griffith on that night. She told me how she heard the car come to the door at two o'clock. She did not know whether an agreement had been reached or whether the conference had broken up until she heard Michael Collins's voice outside and knew by the ring that was in it that things were well. Arthur Griffith came to her room. He walked the floor for hours, telling her what had been done and what would come out of it all. I knew Arthur Griffith from the time I was the age of my little girl, she told me, and I had never seen him excited before. We have got the army, he said. The North will come in. The business people will be with us. You can have your wish, he said. I will leave politics now. Mrs. Griffith had always wanted him out of politics, and the raids upon the house and his frequent arrests had put her and the children under a great strain. There is a good deal I will have still to do, he told her, but in a few months it will all be cleared up. I will leave politics in August. In August, Arthur Griffith was dead. At the first cabinet meeting, after the return of the delegates, there were four in favour of recommending it to Dáil Éireann, Griffith, Collins, Barton and Cosgrove. There were three against, De Valera, Brewer and Stack. Now the question was, would the treaty be passed by the Dáil? The ensuing treaty debate is probably the best known of all Dáil debates, one in which every deputy spoke with great conviction and often with great length. During it, Griffith explained his viewpoint. Nearly three months ago, Doyle Aaron appointed plenipotentiaries to go to London to treat with the British government and to make a bargain. We have brought it back. We were to go there to reconcile our aspirations with the association of the community of nations known as the British Empire. That task which was given to us was as hard as ever placed on the shoulders of men. We faced that task. We knew that whatever happened, we would have our critics, and we made up our minds to do whatever was right and disregarded whatever criticism might occur. We could have shirked the responsibility. We did not seek to act as plenipotentiaries. Other men were asked, and other men refused. We went. The responsibility is on our shoulders. We took the responsibility in London, and we take the responsibility in Dublin. I signed that treaty, not as the ideal thing, but fully believing, as I believe now, it is a treaty honourable to Ireland and safeguards the vital interests of Ireland. And now, by that treaty, I am going to stand, and every man with a scrap of honour who signed it is going to stand. It is the first treaty that admits the equality of Ireland. We have brought back the flag. We have brought back the evacuation of Ireland after 700 years by British troops 
and the formation of an Irish army. We have brought back to Ireland her full rights and powers of fiscal control. Ask this Doyle to pass this resolution. And I ask the people of Ireland and the Irish people everywhere to ratify this treaty. We have a duty to our people. We have a duty, at least as far as our judgment goes, not to lead them astray, not to tell them something will happen if you do this when you know you cannot do it in order to save our faces at the expense of our countrymen's blood. This treaty has no more finality than we are the final generation on the face of the earth. And on January the 7th, 1922, after a debate lasting 12 days, the treaty was ratified with a vote of 64 in favour, 57 against. Griffith took little pleasure in being appointed president of a depleted doll, but as the prospect of a civil war loomed nearer, he was determined that the authority of Dolairn be upheld, and when the anti-treaty forces took possession of key buildings, including the four courts, he was in favour of an immediate confrontation. Nor was he much in favour of the Collins de Valera Pact, postponing a general election. Hernan de Blyde recalls that period. Well, uh, Griffith wanted us to fight then. Uh, he said that uh, it was obvious that we had to fight these people, and the sooner the better. And Criff, uh, Collins at first agreed with him, and it seemed as if a decision to start the Civil War would be taken then. But Mulcahy argued that the army was not ready. And after a little thing, he Collins said perhaps he was right, and the thing was called off. And then in the days immediately before the Civil War, I remember when that proposal to form a joint government, you know, came up. Uh, uh, Griffith, I remember, it was brought before the cabinet. Griffith paused maybe three minutes before he said yes. But at the end of July, a month after the beginning of the Civil War, he suffered a stroke. He was attended by his friend, Dr. Oliver St. John Gogarty, who had him removed to St. Vincent's nursing home. He seemed to be making good progress when on the morning of the 12th of August he suffered a cerebral hemorrhage and died almost immediately. Writer James Stevens wrote, He was, and he remains, an enigma. The future will not guess his riddle. It will not prove or disprove him. He will be measured against no other event, nor tried in any other fires than those he lived through. His anonymity is impenetrable to us. He is, as he was, a name and a secret. Or, in the words of his friend, Michael O'Callaghan, he was a rock among men.